0: Okay, so I guess we can just uh, start. So, uh, hello again, everyone. Nice to see you all. And um, I the uh, title for the talk today is What Makes Buddhism Unique. And uh, the reason I want to talk about this is because I, I always found that the Buddhist teaching is somehow very different from other teachings that we find in the world. Uh, Buddhism is such a... Um, extraordinary teaching then is so different from almost anything else that you find in the world uh, whether it's the world of religion or spirituality or even science uh, buddhism kind of stands on its own as being very unique and very different uh, and uh, i this is you know as i uh, investigated buddhism a long time ago when i started out as a buddhist you know over 30 years ago uh, I remember this was part of what inspired me about the Buddhist ideas. They were just different, they were unique, they were sensible, they were naturalistic, they were universal. They had all of these kind of qualities that made Buddhism really something different. And sometimes I think it is useful to celebrate these things a little bit, to celebrate the fact that Buddhism actually what it is. It is easy to forget about these qualities after having been a Buddhist for a few years, uh, especially those of you who have not born as Buddhists. Yeah, it's kind of you come in, you're very inspired, you forget, and then after a while the meditation doesn't go so well or whatever, and you lose your faith and you lose your inspiration. And then I think it's important to take a few steps back and actually ask yourself about the, these teachings. What is it that makes them so special and so unique? And I like to do that because I think it is actually it always inspires me. And very often I draw a lot on the suttas, of course. Uh, You read the word of the Buddha uh, and then you realize how sensible it is, what you find even in the suttas. Uh, And straight away it inspires you, brings out that good feeling. uh, There's something very special about these teachings. uh. And one of the things that is very special about the Buddhist teachings uh, that I really, uh, you know, where I want to start off this talk uh, is the idea that Buddhism is really about nature. uh. Yeah, it is what you might call a naturalistic philosophy. It's about understanding the way things are. It is not about entering a make-believe world. It is not about believing in something which is unproven. It is not about kind of holding on to things because you need them. Mm-hmm yes we need things in our life, yes we need supports, yes we need these things but if we hold on to things because we need them uh, then there is a danger yeah, that you hold on to things that are untenable and if they are untenable and they turn out to be wrong then the suffering is going to be even worse down the track, holding on to something that is not real is deeply problematic, Yeah, yeah it's going to end up with even worse, things are going to get even worse as a consequence of that uh. And so we need to be even though we need things to hold on to in our life uh, we also need to be realistic at the same time uh. and so the fact that uh, the buddhist teachings are really naturalistic that they are about nature uh, yeah understanding nature is actually such an important part of this uh. and uh, when you start you know the pali word for nature really is the word dhamma dhamma means uh, the way you know, the way the world works, if you like, the lawfulness of the world and all of these kind of things. And uh, when you uh, read the sutta, as you see words like Dhamma being used all over the place. Uh, One of my favorite places of the word Dhamma is in a sutta which shows the natural progression of meditation. And in that sutta, it says that you go from one state to the next one. uh, you do that because it's Dhamma. It's Dhammata is the Pali word. And Dhammata means that it is like natural. It's according to the laws of nature. Yeah. yeah? So the whole process of meditation is actually a natural process. And that Sutta says that you don't will the meditation, you don't intend it because if you have too many intentions and you have too much will kind of making itself into the meditation it tends to destroy the natural process of something unfolding according to cause and conditions and not according to how you want it to unfold so we're uncovering nature we're allowing nature to take its course yeah and we get out of the way and when we get out of the way nature happens by itself according to cause and conditions we just put the basics into place and then things tend to happen as a as a function of that and uh, one um, important uh, corollary or or, or consequence of this is that there is no real distinction in buddhism between science and spirituality yeah in buddhism regardless of uh, uh, what you do because you're always looking for truth, uh, regardless of where you find that truth, uh, you will accept it. Uh, it is not really acceptable to be a Buddhist to kind of push the truth away. Uh, if you have to uh, deny the truth, well, then you have a fundamental problem. Uh, and so, as Buddhists, uh, wherever the truth is to be found, uh, we should follow that truth Uh, if the truth is found in science uh, we should accept that Uh, if the truth is found in the introspective life of meditation practice and the spiritual path uh, we should follow that and they should always uh, complement each other. There should be one whole picture of the world which is complete. There shouldn't be piecemeal truth. This is true now, this is true tomorrow, or they're both true but they're contradictory. That is not how Buddhists work. If they're contradictory then one is not true and the other one is. Like, you can't have contradictory truths, yeah? So <laughs> that just doesn't work. And so this is kind of also very beautiful because it means that we don't reject things willy-nilly in buddhism we can embrace things in a much larger sense of course we also recognize that buddhism has something extra to bring to the table the, you know the spiritual practice the meditation the insights the calm the moral system all of these things are very important and they bring much more to the world to our meaning of life compared to just the scientific method or whatever Uh, But still, the the places where science is true, that is acceptable to us. uh. And so this becomes very powerful and a very thing that makes Buddhism really, really special. uh. Now, uh, 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 there are many, many examples of this. uh, um, uh, But let me start with some simple examples, because if I start too high, it's good to start from the lower things and kind of move up a little bit. uh, And one of the things that I have always found very impressive with Buddhism is the Buddhist moral system or the ethical system, which I think is almost unique in human history here. And the reason why it is unique if you look at the kind of usual moral systems around the world uh, especially found in other religions uh, they tend to be about precepts or commandments or certain rules that have been laid down by some kind of authority and then you have to take on those rules this kind of a typical thing that you find in human societies around the world uh, and uh, but in buddhism you may think, perhaps, that we also have rules, right? We have the five precepts, the eight precepts, the ten precepts, the 227 precepts, the 311 precepts, and on and on it goes. I don't know how many there are at the end of the day. There's a lot. Yeah, I don't know if you, you can ask me about this later, if you want to hear about all the precepts. There are many. Yeah, Buddhism is a kind of a big precept in that sense. But what is interesting about Buddhism is that these precepts are not the end of the story here. The precepts are in a sense a superficial manifestation of the underlying principles of morality here and those underlying principles of morality if you understand what they are they are very interesting very fascinating and so one of those underlying principles is of course that you don't want to hurt other beings right you don't want to and the reason you don't want to hurt other beings is because they have feelings yeah and if you have feelings and if you detract from uh, the meaning of life of another being by hurting them, if you make their life worse, then that is what is called immorality in Buddhism. It's based on the idea that we are all sentient, we all experience the world, we all feel the world. And for that reason, it doesn't matter who feels that world, whether it's an animal or an insect or a human being, wherever there is feeling, there is also moral consequences. Yeah, and this opens up this idea of morality being far, far broader than just humanity, or even just humanity and the animal realm. What if there are other beings in the world that also feel... Well, what about aliens, right? You have to be kind to aliens. Isn't that true? Because they presumably also have feelings, right? What about AIs? This is kind of a big thing. Do we have to be kind to AIs because they have feelings? What if the AI is about to blow up the world or the AI is about to do something bad and it says, oh, please don't turn me off, Yeah, please allow me to, I want to be here. I have feelings too. Do you think that AIs have feelings? I don't think AIs have feelings. I think AIs, you can turn them off, it's okay. Yeah. So, but it's about the idea of feelings that is significant. If you feel the world, then there is moral agency involved in how you treat those beings. And so the starting point is always, how do we treat other beings in the right way? That is what morality is about. But Buddhism takes this one step further. Yeah. And Buddhism says, well, sometimes we don't know what would be good for other beings. We don't know what other people's happiness is. I don't know if I do this, whether this other person will feel good about it or bad about it. You know, sometimes it's very hard to know the consequences of our actions. And because it is so hard, Buddha says, actually, what really matters uh, is that you try to do the right thing. In other words, you try, your intentions are right, your motivations are right. You're coming from a good place inside. uh, That is the important thing here. And so you find this in the sutras. the Buddhist morality is the idea that you look at yourself. Am I coming from a place of compassion, of kindness and care and wisdom and peace and all these beautiful qualities? or am I driven by ill will, by greed, by delusion about what the world is like? Yeah, These are two different things, and you know, we know ourselves to a very large extent what are those pure emotions. You can see when you are self-centered and when you are other-centered or you are more universally centered, all of us together. It is kind of obvious uh, that those two different things, at least to some extent, and then you learn more about it as you go along. And this the reason why this kind of morality is so powerful is because it allows us to uh, talk about all the moral dilemmas in the world all the difficult things that we are faced with things like euthanasia things like abortion things like stem cell research things like ai's yeah this is kind of the, one of the latest things to talk about whether ai is sentient or not uh, all of these things, we can make moral decisions because all we have to do is ask ourselves: Where are we coming from? What is my intention? Yeah, and it opens up these very difficult ethical fields, and we can start to make very clear decisions. So. It- In the case of euthanasia, it's kind of a classical thing, or sometimes it is called voluntary assisted dying. We have a law, I'm sitting now in Western Australia, in Perth. We have a new law in Western Australia, uh, which is a voluntary assisted dying law. People are allowed, given certain circumstances, uh, to choose to die and to be supported in that. Uh, And is that right from a Buddhist point of view? Well. What is your intention? What is your motivation? If your motivation is good, it is always moral. If your motivation is bad, it is immoral. That is the answer. It is not a yes and no answer to the idea of assisted dying. So Buddhist morality is actually a very, very beautiful kind of morality. And sometimes I think we underestimate some of these very simple things on the Buddhist path. We think of it as something superficially, actually it is very profound. And even in the world of moral philosophy, Buddhism, I think, uh, has, can, has could have, might have a, a very you know, important input. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you know about moral philosophy, I don't know very much at all, but you know, you have these ideas of utilitarianism and these sort of things, uh, the idea that the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, this kind of thing. So, so if you kill one person, if everyone else becomes more happy then it's okay that's not really buddhist uh, because we kill one person well usually you're coming from a bad quality when you do that coming from a bad motivation uh, so this is uh, a very one very kind of significant part of the buddhist uh, uh, universe how we think about the world uh, and when i heard when i was reading about this sort of morality i thought wow this is really significant uh, because it shows you an angle uh, Uh, through which to approach the idea of morality, which is very, very unique in in, in the world. uh. So this is one thing here. Now there's one uh, uh, other quality that I often like to talk about when I talk about uh, Buddhist ideas being special. uh. So this is the morality, but what about things like when we come to Buddhism uh, and we have faith and confidence in the Buddhist teachings, uh, right? Uh, The very idea of faith, Is that a Buddhist idea? How do we deal with faith in Buddhism? And I have often, this is another thing which I have found quite remarkable when I started to see the Buddhist suttas, how they deal with that. Because the Pali word that is usually translated as faith is sadha. Yeah, sadha, and sadha is something that arises always in a certain context. The context that sadha arises is when you meet someone who is very special. Let's say you meet the Buddha, right? Let's say you meet someone who you think, this person has a demeanor, there's a certain way of being that actually gives rise to a lot of confidence in this person. That might be someone in your life, some teacher somewhere, but especially the Buddha. And then when you see that person and you see the qualities in that person, and then you listen to what they have to say, that combination of seeing who they are, combined with listening to the teachings, whether they are sensible or not, that is what gives rise to sadhā, And sadhā is what then? Well, it is confidence, right? Because you're having confidence in this person. You think, wow, it's confidence. So one way of thinking about the Buddhist idea of sadhā, or how to translate it is actually as confidence, because you feel drawn towards this because it looks right it sounds right right Uh, if it has all the qualities of being right then probably it is right yeah because that's how we decide whether things are right or not uh. but that is not all uh, yeah this is already very different from most kind of belief systems around the world the fact that it is based on watching and listening and coming to some kind of um, uh, measured agreement about what is going on. Yeah, It's already quite different. It is not kind of faith for faith's sake, as you sometimes may find. But there's one other thing here. And the other thing is even probably in many ways even more important. And this is where the idea of faith actually comes in. Because the point is, if you do hear something very powerful, if you do see someone who might be an Arahant, someone who might be a Buddha, it gives rise to a feeling of uh, there is something in the world that is really worthwhile. Look at this person. How can they act like this? How can they be like this? How can they be cool in the middle of the storm? How can they be cool when everyone around them is arguing with them? How can they have a consistent sense of love, compassion, morality in their lives, all the time, consistently, without any negative? negativity uh, that you are able to see how is that possible and then you hear the teachings that are congruent with that external appearance and when those two things come together it gives sense of a rise of hope there is something in this world that is really special there's something there are teachings in this world that actually lead us away from the ordinary problems of life the ordinary sufferings the ordinary issues that we have to deal with and lead us to a higher plane And then what happens is that you feel joy. And this is the second aspect. And this is where the faith idea of uh, sadhak comes in. Faith is the idea when you really have faith in something, when you really are convinced that something is true, a deep sense of faith, it gives rise to joy because you are seeing a positive outcome down the track by following this particular teaching or whatever it might be and this, so this then is faith in Buddhism. It's this beautiful combination on the one hand of confidence, because you have looked carefully, you have investigated. But on the other hand, when you do find something that really is powerful, you feel joy at the same time. And this makes the Buddhist idea of faith and confidence, Saddha, something again very kind of unique to Buddhism. And of course, you are allowed to doubt. Yeah? This is part of the faith in Buddhism. If you are doubting, uh, the Buddha will say something like, well, you are doubting about doubtful matters. So of course you should doubt. Uh, you may know the very famous Kalama Sutta. It is being kind of, you know, talked about a lot in Buddhist circles. So. And it is a very interesting sutta in many ways. Uh. And uh, one of the things in there is that the Kalamas, uh, this is a group of people in ancient India, the Buddha goes to their village uh, and they start talking to the Buddha. And they say to the Buddha, well, all of these different ascetics, all of these different religious teachers, they come to our village and they teach different things. And one says A, and the other person says minus A. Yeah, they contradict each other, absolutely, there's no... And they ask, we have doubt about these teachers. Who should we follow? What, who is right? How do we decide? And the Buddha's reply to them is that you are doubtful about doubtful matters. Yeah, because there is no way you can know these things. Uh, of course you're having doubt. Uh, and that, um, that uh, allowance to doubt is also, of course, part of our attitude to Buddhism itself. Uh, there are things in Buddhism you may find, may find hard to believe in, okay, so maybe you have a bit of doubt, and that is okay. Yeah. If you have doubts about rebirth, well, just know that the Buddha said there is rebirth. But if you can't accept it, you shouldn't force yourself to accept something you can't. That goes against the Buddhist ideas. It's a kind of abuse, right? If we force ourselves to accept things we can't accept. And certainly Buddhism is not about abuse. And so doubt is okay. Doubt is acceptable. Yeah, Another beautiful part of the Buddhist teachings. And so faith should be a natural outcome of seeing something that really is inspiring, then the real thing comes. Then you doubt, you keep on investigating, and then eventually you come to a conclusion one way or the other, what is right, what you can't believe in. Then you are on the right track, yeah. So these are some of the things, yeah, which kind of make the Buddhist teaching kind of really, really special. But I want to take it one step higher, because one of the things that I always uh, this may sound weird but one of the things that i always liked about the buddhist teachings uh, i said initially that it is naturalistic yeah it is also universal it applies across the border and this is uh, i think very important because in the majority of religions around the world a religion is like a covenant it's an agreement between a certain people and their god yeah their god looks after them and the neighboring tribe they have a different god yeah and that looks after them and then another tribe has another god and then the people fight each other and lo and behold the gods also fight each other right <laughs> this is kind of how the world works and it's kind of a very funny kind of system when you when you think about it and everyone thinks that their god is the real one and the other god is the bad one and and but Buddhism doesn't li- isn't like that. Uh, Buddhism is a system of universal truths, right? Uh, and this is kind of the only religion, the only spiritual system, maybe not the only one, but one of the very few ones that has this universal aspect to them. Uh, the Baha'is, you know, I, I don't know if you heard about the Baha'is. The Baha'is are a small religion that originated in Iran in or in Persia about 150 years ago or so and they have this idea that everyone believes in the same god right That so the whole world believes in the same god so we're all brothers and sisters and that's a it's a very nice kind of sentiment and i think there is some you know underlying reasons for thinking like that but when i meet baha'is and because of my position as a buddhist monk i get to meet all kind of religious leaders when i meet the baha'is i sometimes i kind of dare to kind of voice my buddhist voice and i say well actually you know we don't believe in god and then they reply <laughs> and this is kind of where the system breaks down and they say oh yes you do <laughs> and i think <laughs> this this is kind of the idea of everyone being together of everyone kind of being in harmony together is so strong that it overrides the possibility that some someone may actually be outside of their system and that's kind of where that also breaks down so if you're going to be universal, you have to be universal in a kind of more, even broader sense, right? it well, actually does take everyone in, uh, and other people's ideas are kind of seen somehow within that universal system. Uh. So Buddhism is a system which applies really everywhere, right? Watching the breath, being kind, uh, looking at your mind to understand it these are universal things that apply to all human beings. Everyone can do this. There's nothing really outside or inside uh. But what I found uh, to me, which was very important, I kind of rejected the idea of a creator god when I was very young. As a child, I had a kind of very simple, kind of, I guess, childish faith, you know, like many children have in a, in a god. But it came a certain point in my life where I kind of, with that whole idea, that started to seem utterly ridiculous and I couldn't really hold on to it anymore. I just had to give it up. And when i came to a teaching where there was no creator god uh, you know i thought this is actually very interesting uh, i'm certainly not anti-spiritual uh, i'm not anti-developing the mind but i cannot believe in a in a, a kind of um idea of a creator god it just doesn't make any sense yeah with the idea of a creator god uh, it is flawed on so many principles uh. and one of the To me, the really kind of biggest flaws of all of the idea of a Creator God, or of a universal spirit, or the ground of consciousness that underlies all of creation, or the Creator outside of time and space, or the eternal spirit, or whatever you want to call it, the fundamental flaw to me in all of that is that it is impossible for a human being to have an experience that corresponds to that God. You can never experience that God all human experience is limited in time and space even if you have a very profound spiritual experience you have an experience of a state of samadhi for example which may feel like a god in many ways because there is no self there it is very very blissful everything is completely unified yeah there's the sense of me has kind of dissolved into what appears to be a universal kind of a feeling yeah but uh, Even though that is true, and even though it may seem to have many of the qualities that people often associate with the idea of a god, even though that is the case, if you look at it carefully, you recognize actually it is an experience that begins at a certain point, and it ends at a certain point. How can you make the leap that this is an eternal god? How can you make the leap that this is something outside of time and space? How can you make the leap that this is some somehow permanent and always present? That is an interpretation. That is adding a philosophy. It is adding human made ideas to an idea, to a, an experience which actually doesn't have that quality. so that kind of takes away this for me this whole idea of a a creator god or something that is always there is completely it just doesn't work it has to be based somehow at the end of the day on human ideas that that are brought into the world but the buddha wasn't into making things up the buddha wasn't into creating ideas about the creator god or something that is eternal the buddha was a pragmatist The Buddha was about insight into the nature of experience. And in the nature of experience, there is no such thing that is eternal. And so the Buddha himself gave up that idea. And this, you find this in the suttas, of course, a very important part of the Buddhist path is that everything is impermanent. And there is no room for the idea of an internal God when everything is impermanent. It is an idea that kind of falls flat when you really understand what is going on. And um, many people. This is kind of scary. There are still many people in our world who believe in this idea of some eternal thing that is always there, and maybe it even uh, gets involved in our lives and helps us helps us out. This is kind of a very common idea in the world, and it is, of course, very. It can be very nice to have that, yeah, because it means that someone is looking out for you. Someone is there when you are in desperate need or whatever. And this is important for us as human beings, that we have some things to lean on in our lives. I mentioned this at the beginning. But the things that you want to lean on in your life, if they are hollow, if they are not real, it means you actually have a big problem, right? What if that creator God isn't there at the end of the day? What are you going to do? So this can actually be very, very problematic. You're leaning on something which is not real. Then, actually, you end up suffering down the track. The only way that we are going to have real ability to deal with the world in the right way is if we see the world in the right way. We have to have real insights, real understandings of what is going on. Only when we act on reality are our actions going to be useful. And this is why the idea of right view is so fundamental in Buddhism. Because if you have right view, if you see the world the way it is, it means you can act according to the way the world is. It means that you can act according to what's going to make you happy. You are to act in the accordance to what is going to make you, uh, not make you suffer. If we don't see the truth, if you don't understand the truth, if you are deluded, you're going to make mistakes in these fundamental aspects of how to make the most of your life. Yeah, this 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 kind of idea, I think is from the Bible, actually. I I feel terrible about quoting the Bible, but uh, there's something like the the truth sets you free or something to that effect. I think it's a quote from the Bible, not entirely true now. But that is very much in the Buddhist spirit, yeah? When you see the truth, uh, it means that you are able to act according to reality. That makes you able to do things that actually are in your best interest. uh. If you don't see the truth, uh, you're not going to be able to act in your own best interest. uh. And so it matters, actually, whether we believe in a creator God or not. And what happens is that if you, ultimately, yeah. if you're able to let go of this idea of a God, you know, a, a mum or a dad who kind of is far away, who looks after you or whatever, if you're able to let go of that, uh, what happens is that it actually empowers you. Uh, yeah, because it makes you, responsible for your life. Instead of asking some external agency to look after you, you become responsible for your life. It empowers you to live your life to the best possible ability that you have, and then do something with your life. Your life is in your hands. You may think that that sounds very idealistic, and in some ways it is idealistic. It is a very kind of high bar to set for oneself, because sometimes we don't feel very strong or we don't feel that we are able to deal with the difficulties in life but the point is that it is much safer than putting your life into the hands of something you don't know anything about something which may not not exist at least now you have some agency there's something that you can do and that is actually a very beautiful thing here. And so the idea for me of rejecting the idea of the create God is actually liberating. It frees you, it empowers you, it makes it possible for you to take your life in your own hands and do something with your life that is really profound. But that leads me to the very last thing I want to talk about. And that is the idea, which is the most profound idea in Buddhism, which makes Buddhism unique in a very profound sense. And that is the idea of non-self. This is what really makes Buddhism different from all other teachings. And it has some very interesting implications if we take this idea on board. First of all, if we have the idea of non-self, and this is a subject I talk about all the time, because I think it's really, really important to understand this. If there no non-self in the world, well, what are we then as human beings? What we are, we are not a solid entity. We are not something that can stand our ground in the uh, kind of uh, turmoil of the world, the conditioning of the world. We are all the time conditioned by things around us. If there were a self, maybe you could stand firm as a pillar and you can kind of weather all the conditions in the world, all the people you know, who are, some of them nice, some of them neutral, some of them a bit more difficult. But the reality is we're not like that. We are more like a hull, a ship on the ocean. A ship that has no rudder, no sails, no engine, no oars, nothing to navigate. And we are entirely dependent on the wind, the prevailing winds and the currents in that ocean. That is what we are like as human beings, moving around in the wind, moving around according to the currents, not really having any ability in ourselves to withstand what is happening in the world. And once you start to realize this that this is true for you it is true for everyone around you uh, that we are in the end we are just the sum total of the condition that has worked on us in this life and maybe also in previous lives uh, yeah that we are the result of our habits uh, yeah and that we are in a sense trapped by whatever personality that we have right now once you start to understand that uh, you start to look at people in an entirely different way you look at yourself in an entirely different way uh, First of all, you start to have compassion for people in the world. You realise that when people do bad things, when they invade foreign countries, when their ego takes off completely, when they speak to you in a bad way, all the bad things that happen in the world, the climate going down the drain, NATO, you know, whatever it is that happens in the world that is bad, you start to realise that they don't really understand. It is not as if they do this because they are somehow fundamentally evil. No, it's because they are conditioned in this way. And when people are incredibly different from you, maybe they have very different political opinions from you, Yeah, it is very easy to demonize them and think that they somehow are fundamentally different from you. But they are not. The only difference is that they have been conditioned in a different way. And they are just as sure of their ideas as you are sure of yours, simply because the conditioning is so different. And once you see this, once you take away the self, uh, you take away this idea that there's something inside of you that is sensible, yeah? something inside of you that is there and stands ground and knows, yeah, this is right. I'm only going to do what is right. Uh, take that away. Uh, you can start to have compassion for the whole world because you understand we are all trapped. Uh, we're all prisoners of our habits. Uh, We're prisoners of our personalities, we're doing things because of past conditioning, not because we are somehow superior or better or different or fundamentally uh, uh, solid as human beings. And then you take that also into your own life. And I was saying before that one of the great things about giving up the Creator God is that it empowers you. But also, because of non-self, you start to understand the limits of that empowerment. If there is no self, it means that because you're always conditioned and because your habits from the past are so strong, it's going to be very difficult to change course, right? So it's not as if you can just take yourself and make yourself into whatever you want to be. It is not that simple. Your habits will still carry on for a long, long time. And I often like the idea, I use the simile of like a supertanker. A supertanker traveling on the ocean Yeah, is a very, very heavy thing. It has tremendous momentum. It takes a very long time to turn around a supertanker. It's surprising how fast these large ships can go. They can maybe go 20, 30 kilometers an hour. And when you have half a million tons, that's what these ships are like. Moving at 30 kilometers an hour, it takes a long time to turn it around. And we are a bit like super tankers. We have a tremendous momentum from the past, moving at a certain speed into the future. It takes a long time to change those habits, yeah? So we take charge of our lives. We take responsibility for ourselves, but we understand it is not going to be easy. It is going to take time, it's going to take persistence, it's going to take doing again and again. And when we fail, we have compassion for ourselves because we know that our failure is not because we have somehow not lived up to whatever ideals, is because of our conditioning. Yeah, of course we're gonna fail. Of course you're gonna get angry sometimes. Of course you're gonna do these things wrong sometimes. And you have compassion for yourself. And this idea of having compassion for oneself is such a beautiful thing. Because the moment you have compassion for yourself, the moment you understand the limits of what you can do in your life, actually it releases something very beautiful inside of you. Yeah, it means that you can care for yourself, you don't get angry with yourself, you don't get depressed if you fail on the spiritual path. No, instead, you have an appreciation for your own limits and you feel, when you suffer, you feel a sense of kindness towards yourself because you know that that suffering probably is inevitable and there's nothing you, really, you can do about it. You don't get angry, either with yourself or others. Instead, you have compassion. And all of this is the outcome of this idea of non-self. It's a very beautiful teaching here. These teachings of Buddhism that seem somehow so um, strange and alien and different from what we normally think about life, uh, actually, when thought about in the right way, are very powerful pointers to how we should approach reality, how we should deal with ourselves and deal with other people. uh. And then of course the teaching of non-self comes into our meditation practice when i was saying before how meditation really is about a natural consequence and natural development of the mind we just allow things to be yeah and if there is no self it means that if the self gets involved in the meditation that is just a false delusion trying to make nature happen in a certain way And so the idea of non-self and meditation, the right way of thinking about it, is the idea of standing back, not getting involved, because you know the moment you are getting involved, you are actually adding delusion to the experience. And that is what you start to understand. Instead of you thinking that you can create the future, it is actually just this false sense of self that wants to take credit for the meditation and wants to make it work because the sense of self wants to express itself. And so you use the idea of non self uh, to allow things to be, uh, to experience rather than to manipulate, uh, to be rather than to do. Uh, And as you do that, or rather don't do that, (laughs) then actually what happens, of course, is that the meditation happens. Why? Because you have put the cause into place. Uh, The causes are all the Uh, beautiful aspects of morality on the Buddhist path. So you sit back, you allow everything to become peaceful. You don't do very much at all. Maybe you nudge the mind a little bit from a Dhamma kind of perspective. The rest is this nature happening by itself. You learn to stand back because of the idea of non-self. All right, so those are some of the things that I find really really inspiring about uh, the buddhist teachings and which actually are very different from what you find I think almost anywhere else in the world and that's why I am a dyed in the wool buddhist and I've been a a monk for a long time anyway that's the talk for you so if you now Manora would like to open up for some questions then uh, please people are very welcome to ask questions so Or comment if you don't like want to ask. You can always comment as well. Whatever you want to say is uh, not what. Whatever is the wrong word. Eh? <laughs> you know what I mean. There. Eh?
1: Thank you very much, Ajahn, for this talk and for this sometimes challenging view of how to move forward with our understanding of where we should be placed in our lives if uh-huh. anybody would like to ask a question then please either raise your digital hand or <laughs> your real life hand and i will try to to choose you one by one to ask questions so first is, have, you seen,
0: have you seen my cup derek can you see it can you, can you read my cup
2: it's very no, cool yes. I good cup suitors. isn't
0: it <laughs> <laughs> great cup i love suitors i love suitors cup yeah <laughs> Someone gave Hi, it me. Okay.
2: Hi. <laughs> thank you so much for for your talk i really enjoyed it um uh so i i'll probably say something similar that you have said but just slightly in different words uh, that are relevant uh, for my life now i find that that sometimes it helps and I find that, that monks and nuns answer our questions time and time again. You give great answers, you help us, but um, it also helps uh, if, if you, know, you ask it in a slightly different way. So uh, if we speak about conditioning, uh, I find it to be very true, of course, in my life and everyone's life. Um, for me now, what is uh, happening in my life is um, Uh, hardship uh, in a physical sense. So um, I'm, uh, I have a baby of uh, seven months old, and uh, the Mm -hmm. physical exhaustion of uh, not sleeping. um, I think mainly that and also all other things. It's all natural and everything I understand it, but I find myself uh, being really angry sometimes. And I understand it, that it's like, you know, and try to feel compassion for myself, like I don't get enough sleep. And it's going on for months and months. And it's, you know, um, many parents go through this, etc. But I would appreciate if you could say something, um, anything that could be helpful at all from this particular angle. Of course, your dog has spoken a lot already answered my questions, but it also from this particular anger, angle of uh when you're you have negative emotions because of physical exhaustion because of conditions sure.
0: yeah yeah okay no that's good I, I first of all i just wanted to say that the uh what you said at the beginning there i think is actually very important yeah you said about uh, yes you hear many talks yes you hear good advice but sometimes you actually need to learn things in your own way and when you do that that is often when you get insight and wisdom uh, And so very often the kind of the word that you hear from the Buddha or you hear from a talk or whatever, it is to give you some ideas, it is to kind of move you in the right direction. But in the end you have to internalize those things and make them your own. And then when you internalize and make them your own and you look at it in slightly your own way, you take the rough ideas of the Buddha and then you apply them in your own way so that actually they are meaningful to you, then they become really powerful. And this is why contemplation and reflection on this teaching, so as to internalize them and make them your own, actually is so important. Because that is where the real wisdom arises. uh. But if for your own situation, yeah you I mean you obviously know everything already about the idea of having compassion and all that you, you mentioned that already. so you know that. and so of course you have to try that all the time, yeah for yourself and for other people and just understanding that these are natural processes or whatever. But one of the um, I think one of the kind of nice ways of dealing with uh, difficulties and emotional hardship and pain and all of these kind of things uh, is uh, when the pain arises, uh, feel the pain instead of reacting reacting to the pain. Yeah, Because when you feel the pain and you think, wow, this is reality, yeah? this is what life is like, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, all of these things are really difficult, it feels terrible and you feel the pain. Actually, the moment you feel the pain and you can actually... This gives rise, this is the, like the ground for insight. This is what human existence is like, right? So, how should I react to this? And at, at that moment, if you understand this is what human life is like, a tremendous amount of compassion can arise for yourself. Yeah. This is what my life feels like. Actually, it's it's not good. Yeah, I have to have you know the only solution. It is unavoidable. I have to have compassion for myself. And by going to the feeling and accepting the feeling, accepting this reality, something starts to happen inside of you. You take kind of a very different approach to that thing. Very often, the reason we get angry when we um, when we feel negative feelings because instead of feeling it properly, yeah, we're just reacting to it straight away, uh, and that reaction is actually the problem. So feel it, uh, really feel it. This is human existence. Uh, it gives rise to small little insights into what life really is like, yeah, and that. In the end, it becomes compassionate, it becomes something that propels you on the path, it moves you forward because you understand what the true human condition is like. Yeah. Beginning to understand, anyway, yeah. so that is one skillful way, maybe, of dealing with that. Yeah, yeah. okay. Okay,
1: next question is from Anne.
3: Thank you. Can you can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Ashan. I just wondered um, what your views were on the role of gods as they're presented in the Sutra. I was really interested to hear what you're saying about the creator god, and I understand how the Brahm, Brahm, Brahma kind of misconceived how he thought he was the only god. But but gods do play a role, don't they, in the Sutra? So i was just interested in your views on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so so this is kind of what I so thank you for that question. I think it's a, I think is a very important question actually, and I think that uh, for me the gods of the suttas are. This is kind of weird thing to say, but for me they are much more realistic than the creator um, god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and right, and this is kind of the weird thing because if you look at the kind of um, uh, the study of religion in more academic circles, the way they often think about religion, they think about you know in the thousands of years ago we had this very primitive idea of gods it was like our god that looked after our tribe and this was very similar they had many gods they had kind of they were in charge of different areas of life right some were warrior gods some were were fertility gods and all these kind of things and you prayed to this one then and prayed another one then and all these things and then there was this idea that we got more and more sophisticated over time the number of gods shrank it became less and less until you had one god right which was who was responsible for everything and that god receded more and more from human life until it kind of almost disappeared completely behind the scenes and that was considered the most sophisticated kind of god but actually to me it's the other way around it's almost as if we have moved in the wrong direction to me many of the ideas of the early gods are actually more realistic because these are gods that are much more human in a way, yeah. If you look at think about the ancient Greek gods and the ancient Roman gods and the ancient Nordic gods, yeah, they are my gods before I was a Buddhist. Uh, I know, no, I'm just talking. <laughs> and um, and because they are very human, they have greed, they fight, they kind of get born and they die, and they have get married and they have kids and all these kind of things, yeah. And they are, have limited lifespans and all these kind of things. These are the kind of gods you can. Possibly experience uh, these are the kind of gods you can actually have even interaction with. Yeah, so to me these are these are far more realistic. And uh, I would say because the Buddha talks about such gods, uh, the Buddha claims to have had conversation with such gods. With you know all these kind of things, uh, uh, and I take the word of the Buddha incredibly seriously. Uh, hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully in the right measure um i take it very very seriously and i have no doubt that there are such personally have no doubt that there are such gods yeah just as as, as there also are lower beings like uh, you know ghosts and these kind of things the whole kind of uh, pantheon of beings so uh yeah does that answer your question or, or uh? yeah it does thank you gives it
3: a yeah. full picture
0: thank you appreciate uh,
1: okay. that okay good uh, yeah hi james um, thank you for your um, oh, sorry, got the picture on. Yeah. Thank you for your talk. Um, the, the thing that I think I've always liked about Buddhism in terms of morality is that um, you feel like in other religions, if you misbehave, you're going to get punished for it. so you're motivated yeah. to be a good person because bad things will happen to you otherwise, whereas, it seems like Buddhist morality is more, it's in your own self-interest as well as in the interest of others. So if I set intentions of goodwill and harmlessness, then obviously that could result in sort of good moral behavior, but it would also result in good things for me. So it's not just a moral thing, it also becomes a thing of wisdom. And similarly, if if I encourage wholesome mental states to arise, then Mm -hmm. It'll encourage good moral behaviour, and um, but it'll also bring bring peace to me as well. So there's there's this interesting bringing together of, yeah. of yeah. being good for others, but also it being in our own self interest. Am I am I thinking that correctly? Because it seems it almost seems a bit sort of like yeah. too self interested. Maybe I don't know. Am I thinking that correctly?
0: Thank you. No, I, I, think, I think that's a very, very important point. Actually, I was just—I mean, I—I I have done quite a bit of translation from the Pali into English. I've been translating the whole Vinaya Pitaka, which is all the uh, kind of the rules and regulations for the monastic order. And I was contemplating that today. Like you know, some of these things are kind of moral injunctions or moral rules that we have to keep. Uh, But sometimes the rules are very strange. I mean, there is, for example, a lot of the rules for the monastic order are about sexual restraint, right? And that's not really about morality here. What it is about is about creating a kind of mind which inclines towards meditation and makes a spiritual path possible. And this is exactly what you are saying. You know, there's a kind of combination. There is the moral aspect, we don't do the bad things. But uh, then there is all the kind of the positive outcome of doing the good things, and Buddhist morality this is, again, is where it is very different. It's not just about avoiding the bad, it's about doing the good. Yeah? So this word sila, that is actually a Pali word, uh, is far, far broader than the English word morality or the European word morality. You know? It is about our entire conduct, our entire habit patterns, about our minds, uh, about the positive and the negative, and all of these things coming together. You do it for yourself and you do it for others. It becomes universal. Uh, and that is one of the ways that I have always liked to define the word spirituality. Something is spiritual if it is good for you and others, others and you, that is when it's right. If it's only good for one, if it's only good for you, it's selfish. If it's only good for the other, it is like sacrifice. If it's good for both, that is when it is spiritual. And so that's kind of how you define almost the spiritual thing. So thank you, for, thank you for that very important point, yeah. Thank you. So you don't think there's
1: there's some kind of risk in in sort of like, be, it, be it behaving well and and doing well and kind of expecting good results. Like there's a kind of egotistical.
0: Do you see what I mean? It's. Like... I, I see what you mean. I, I mean there's there's always a risk. I mean life is there's no life without risk, right? So you just have to minimize the risk. And so what you what you do is that you the, the ideal is to know that it will have a good effect without being. Uh, motivated by it, yeah? The ideal motivation is to do things purely because you want to be kind towards someone else. And if the more pure that motivation is, the more powerful the effect will be on you. If you think about yourself, the less power that kindness will have. So it's in your self-interest not to be self-interested. <laughs> if you see what I mean, right? So you, so when you are kind and when you are generous, be a hundred percent generous. Be a hundred percent kind. Forget about yourself. That is when you're doing the highest kind of kindness, both to yourself and others. So. Uh, You know i mean the spiritual path one of the important things i think on the spiritual path uh, is not to set the bar too high if we set the bar too high it becomes impossible to do anything at all and of course sometimes there will be self-interest creeping into these things Uh, don't worry about it uh, yeah do the right thing and then learn as you go along how to reduce that self-interest and be more even more pure if you like in your kindness and in your generosity
1: Thank you, John. Good.
4: Hi, Diana. Eric. hi John Bramali. Thank you for being You're here welcome. today and speaking with us. Yeah. Um, I'm calling in from Massachusetts, so I arrived late. I calculated the time wrong. So I'll Ooh, have to listen. Okay. <laughs> I'll have to listen to the beginning on the recording. I'm glad it's there. Um. But I did hear you talking about non-self and this idea of um, how we're just simply a product of causes and conditions, everything that we do, think, and our behavior, and that it's important to keep that perspective in mind. So my question comment is about meditation and having the causes and conditions to excel to strive for attainment. And we know about attainments in meditation. And yet, striving for them is antithetical to letting go of wanting. And obviously, that's not the point. So letting go of the desire to achieve something in meditation seems like one of the keys to achieving anything in meditation. Do you see what I yeah. mean? So I was just wondering yes. if you could speak a little about that, please.
0: Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I think this is such an important point. This is something Ajahn Brahm talks about all the time. He's been talking about this since I became a monk with him almost 30 years ago, and he has never kind of let up on that kind of teaching. And I think it <laughs> actually matches with what the Buddha says as well, the Buddha says very clearly, you're not supposed to make any intention in a meditation practice. He says it's a natural thing. It happens according to natural causes. And once that kind of sinks in, it means that what you what you learn is that you and more and more you allow the process to happen uh, yeah, in your meditation. More and more you learn to be a passive observer, the passenger on the train looking out the window, the person who is kind of chilling in the armchair but not really doing anything, right? You become that kind of person. Uh, and you understand that the process of meditation, what it really depends on uh, is how you live your general life, yeah, how you live your life outside of meditation, uh, how you establish your mind as you begin the meditation. These are the critical things uh, that will actually allow the meditation to go forward and so understanding the idea of non-self is actually incredibly helpful because what it means and, and when you understand that the process of meditation is a natural process it means that you know that there is no way you can make this happened. It's not up to this. The sense of self is false anyway. The sense of self wants to take credit for this meditation, right? The sense of self wants to get involved. And the reason why the sense of self wants to get involved is because that is how it expresses itself in the world. We, you know, people are doers. You know, if you look into the world, everyone is a doer, right? And we enjoy creation. We enjoy doing things. Why? Because the self is expressing itself. But if that self happens to be false, then all that expression also is kind of false in a, in a very deep and profound sense of the term. yeah. And then you understand that actually you have to step aside from that. This is a trap, this is a feeling that the self wants to make nature happen. But the self is not what, what makes nature happen, because the sense of self is just a deluded addition to the phenomena we call nature, which are the underlying things, which has nothing to do with the self. And so uh, when you understand this, you start to become more um, able to let go, more able to let things be, more able to just sit back, yeah, able to understand that actually the self is just a, uh, it's just a nuisance, it gets in the way. Uh, And then you know some days your meditation will work, some days they won't work. And if they don't work, there's nothing much you can do about it, right? And then you kind of allow the process to happen. And one of the kind of remarkable things that sometimes happen when you do this is that when the self really starts to disappear in this way, suddenly the Dhamma starts to shine through, right? And sometimes I like to talk about nudging the mind in meditation practice. Uh, that feeling of nudging the mind, is like the Dhamma speaks to you. Yeah, It's no longer you, it's kind of the word of the Buddha at the back of your mind because you have been brainwashed by the Buddha, right? And so the brainwashing suddenly shines through and it tells you, okay, perceive like this. And so you nudge the mind slightly, but it's not really you doing it anymore. It's coming from the Dhamma. And then the nudging happens in the right way. That is the only kind of doing what should we really do during meditation. Apart from that, we should learn to sit back and allow the process to happen. So I think the very idea of contemplating the absence of a self can actually be very useful for meditation practice, because it teaches you about the idea of being passive observer rather than the agent of the meditation. Thank you. Okay. Very good. Huh? Yeah.
3: Thank you all so much for your questions. Um, I'm just very aware of the time and now it is 10.30. So I think we're just going to finish things up. Um I'm just gonna uh, well first of all, just want to thank you massively, um, Adam Rumali for leading us in meditation this morning and sharing your wisdom. Oh, well, it's this evening for you. Um, And it's so inspiring to hear from you, one of our spiritual advisors at Anukampa. And we're so fortunate to be offered the teachings of the Buddha from you. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Excellent. Um, So we're very grateful that Ajahn has given his time to help us with our two aims at Anukampa, to promote the teachings and practices of early Buddhism, leading to full awakening, and to help establish the first forest monastery in England where women can take full bhikkhuni ordination. Thank you so much for your support for Anukampa Ajan. We're full of meta for Venerable Chandateri, who is now over halfway through Vassa retreat in Perth and will be returning to us at the beginning of November. So All of these teachings are offered in the spirit of dana, generosity. If you are able to, we're asking for your dana towards Anukampa. We've seen the project flourish this year and we wish to continue the, to support the bhikkhuni sangha in the UK and start raising funds to expand from our beautiful Vihara in Oxford to an even bigger abode to house more bhikkhunis, aspirants and lay supporters because we've already outgrown our lovely Vihara in Oxford. Without the support of the community here this morning and the wider community, we wouldn't be where we are today, spreading the teachings of the Buddha to all. If you can, we are asking for monetary donations to support the expansion of Anukampa. However small or big you are able to give, every penny is so gratefully received to support the bhikkhuni sangha and get even closer to having a full forest monastery for bhikkhunis in the UK. Please visit our website to donate and Minori can you pop the uh, link in the chat? Thank you. You're able to offer a one-off donation or a more regular monthly donation that will really support the project. There's also going to be the opportunities to offer food dana for the Vihara from November onwards and offer your time at the Vihara from the new year. Should you wish to offer these, please email team at anukampaprojects.org. And um, that email's in the chat. Please also see the Anukampa website for the weekly teachings we are being offered by the wonderful Bhikkhunis and Ajahn Bramali supporting Anukampa while Venerable Chanda is on the tree. Uh, as well as uh, Ajahn Brahm's teachings in November. Many of those dates are getting uh, f- filled up. Uh, the Sheffield Day retreats are fully booked, so we have a wait list for that. And the retreat in Oxford just has a few spaces left now, so please do book in soon. Um, and also Venerable Chandra's retreats and talks she'll be giving on her return in the UK, US, and Norway. And some of those retreats are now open for booking. Next Sunday will be at 9 a.m. British Summer Time again and will be led by Venerable Tereka on keeping a balanced mind through the day. So thank you all for joining us this morning. And in true Campus style, we will unmute so that we can all say goodbye to each other.
0: (laughs) Okay, thank you so much, Shell. And I just want to say very briefly that I I am also here because I'm very supportive of this project. And I think it's a wonderful thing that we have this uh, possibility of starting a real (coughs) ecosystem in the UK. It's a marvellous thing. Anyway, oh. <laughs> okay.